Well, this morning we're turning again to Paul's letter to the Romans. Last week we thought about the overarching theme of the letter, which is the faithfulness of God. And we considered Paul's inspiring words in Romans 8, where he concludes that there's nothing in this wide world that could ever separate us from God's love. But we left off saying that our experience of God's amazing love and faithfulness is really meant to be in the context of God's family. So this morning we're going to think about what Romans has to say about being in God's family. If you happen to miss last week, go on to uh, fitzroy.org.uk, check out the sermon section, you can can listen again. Uh, You'll find um, also one or two suggestions for further reading if if you want to do that. From chapter 15 of Romans, we come to realize that Paul has some major plans for the future. For the last 25 years, he's been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ into the eastern part of the empire. Now he wants to take the gospel into the western part of the empire, into Spain, and he knows to do that he needs a good base. Although he's never been to Rome, he's heard about the Roman churches, and he thinks this could be the place out of which to stage this new mission. But to do that, he knows that he needs a strong, united church. We began to think last week about some of the tensions there were amongst the first generation of Christians over the question of how do Gentiles come into God's family. Some Jewish Christians felt that this whole Jesus movement was, after all, a Jewish thing, and if Gentiles were going to come into it, they really needed to follow the Jewish law. Paul, though he was a Jew himself, championed the view that the only thing needed to be part of God's family was to follow Jesus, and that following the law was no longer necessary. And as we read Paul's letters, we come to realize that all of this was causing quite a bit of controversy and division amongst the first Christians. As we read Romans 14 and 15, we realized there were tensions along these lines in Rome as well. There was a dispute going on over what foods to eat, what days to keep, and it all seems to reflect Jewish-Gentile disputes over these things. So Paul has some advice for the Roman Christians to help them live in unity. And much of what he says elsewhere in the letter seems to be about encouraging Gentile believers not to look down their nose at the Jewish believers. So having a united, harmonious family of believers in Rome was very, very important to Paul. They were to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And with one voice to glorify God, as he says in chapter 15. With all this in mind then, Paul tells the story of both Jews and Gentiles in his letter to the Romans. And it's a common story. Both Jews and Gentiles share in the same problem that faces every person. The problem of distance from God caused by willfulness and disobedience and sin. In chapter 1 from verse 18 onwards, Paul highlights the way that the Gentile nations have disregarded God and become idolatrous, resulting in judgment. Chapter 2, he shows that Israel, despite having had the gracious gift of the law, was no better off because of her sin and pride. And so Paul concludes, having considered both sets of people, in chapter 3, all have sinned, all have fallen short. There is, he says, no distinction. 
we're all in the same boat. And having established that, he then goes on to show that both peoples are in the same boat when it comes to God rescuing them. God provides salvation for everybody on the basis of faith in Jesus the Messiah. It was on the base, if it was on the basis of keeping the Jewish law, then, as Paul says in 3.29, God would be the God of the Jews only. But he's not. He's the God of the whole world. And he saves on the basis of something that can be common to both Jews and Gentiles. Faith in Christ. <clears throat> now, there are four ways in which Paul in Romans describes what God does for people who follow Jesus. One is justification, one is redemption, and one is reconciliation. But I want to focus a bit more on the other way that Paul describes what God does for us in Romans. And we find it in 8.15, where he says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul uses this term adoption a number of times in Romans and also in his other letters. Believers, says Paul, have been adopted into God's family. Now this is a very powerful metaphor in Paul's world. And he really deepens our understanding of what God has done for us in Christ by using this this word. In Roman society, the basic unit in the first century was the household, which was effectively ruled by the father, of course, it was a very patriarchal, uh, androcentric society. People didn't think of themselves so much as individuals as part of a household. A household typically involved the children, it involved slaves, it involved business suppliers, and a whole group of people. And bringing somebody into the household through adoption played an important part in this world. Emperors, for example, would adopt men with the sole intention of having a successor. It was often used to maintain your property uh, or your family name. Adoption took place through a very complicated legal procedure and adopted sons became no less important than biologically born offspring. They took on the same legal status as real sons. They laid aside their their old name, they acquired the name of the new family. Fundamentally, they transferred from one family into another with all the attending privileges and responsibilities. For the adoptee, a new life began. All this, of course, Paul's uh, readers in Rome were familiar with. So Paul's showing them by means of a, a social practice that they knew well just what happens when a person has faith in Christ. In the Roman family, the head of the household took the initiative and brought somebody into his household to share in the legal status, the protection, the economic well-being of that group. Salvation, says Paul, is just like that. It's God taking an outsider, somebody who doesn't belong, and bringing them into a new family right into the heart of God's family. And if we are now fully God's children as a result of this, says Paul in 8.17, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Now, interestingly, in Roman law, the heir was understood to be the embodiment of the father. The father lived on, so to speak, in the son. And more interestingly, not from the time of the father's death, but from the time 
of the son's adoption. All of which, I think, makes Paul's adoption metaphor a very rich one indeed for us. We've been transferred from the old family into God's family. We're not just in by the skin of our teeth. We've got full legal status. We're completely part of the family. We're fully heirs of all that God has for us in this life and in the kingdom to come. And we embody the head of the household God himself. Wherever we go, we're to represent God. We're to bring his presence into whatever situation we go into. That's what it means to be part of God's family. Paul's writing to a very mixed group of people, many of whom really have every reason for a lack of self-esteem. Some of the people in the church are at the very bottom of the pile. They're slaves, just somebody else's property to be abused sexually or otherwise. Some are homeless, doing whatever work anybody might give them to scratch a living. Some are Jews who suffer anti-Semitism in Rome. Also, they've got a lack of recognition in the Christian church of their Jewish background. For each of these people, Paul's metaphor of adoption is is very, very good news. God's accepted them. God's brought them into the inner circle. He's loved them. He's made them his representatives. For people on the bottom of the pile. This is amazing, actually. It's very, very countercultural. Everything in their world put them at the bottom. This message of the gospel raised them up. But it's not so different in our world, I think. Poverty and hunger and war afflicts a huge proportion of the world's population. The vulnerable people, children, women, the old are usually the victims. Everything says to these people, you're worthless. You don't count, you're nothing. For those of you who have been in developing world situations, you'll know that very often when you meet desperately poor people, they'll not even look you in the eye. That's what poverty does to a person. It robs them of their dignity, their self-esteem. And in such situations... The gospel really is good news to the poor, where people are brought into a loving family where their needs are met, where people show by their actions that they count, that they can mean something. When the gospel's lived out and demonstrated, oppressed people begin to lift their heads again with the sense that they count because they're part of God's family. But alienation and despair and lack of esteem is not just the lot of the developing world. We see it all around us in the world that we live in, here in the streets of Belfast. Maybe even here among some of us in Fitzroy today. And the message that there is a loving God who values us as individuals, who loves us, who welcomes us into his family, is a message that we all need to hear and let fill us. When life slaps us down, when disappointment hits When we just aren't making it, we need to know deep in our hearts that we are part of God's family. He hasn't just opened the door and let us into the hallway. He's actually carried us right into the kitchen to be in the heart of family life with everybody else. He loves us. We're his children. We belong. And no matter what lies the world tells us at times about ourselves... Each of us 
is valuable to God, we're in his family. We can hold our heads up. So then, back to the thrust of our story in Romans. We all share in the same problem. We're all rescued by the same means, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we've been adopted into one family, God's family. But for Paul, this wasn't some spiritual, idealistic concept. It's grounded in an actual, real family of human beings in a location. It's, it's only as this actual, real group of believers in Rome discovers their common story, their common family heritage, their belongingness together, their responsibilities as members of God's household. It's only as they do that that they can become the strong, united body that Paul knows is needed for the big mission push into Spain. See, all this good stuff in Romans about God's faithfulness, about God's love, about being part of God's family, isn't just theory. It isn't just theology. It's expressed and finds its outworking in the real, live, human, imperfect context of what we call the church. God's family isn't just an idea. It's it's us. It's us together supporting one another, being there for one another, providing for one another, taking care of one another, loving one another. And so Paul goes on to explain some of the implications of all this talk about Jews and Gentiles united into one family, all this talk about adoption in the passage that Stephen read for us in Romans chapter 12. How does this family function? How do things work? in this united, loving family. Well, first of all, everybody's got a part to play. Romans 12, Paul uses one of his favorite metaphors for a group of Jesus followers. He says it's like a body. And his point clearly is that each of us has a part to play. What everybody does is different, but each is important. Each of us is given grace by God to make our contribution. And here, Paul mentions some of the things that the believers in Rome might be doing. He mentions prophesying, serving, teaching, exhorting, contributing, leading, doing acts of mercy. The list that he suggests here as examples is not the same as the list that he gives in Corinthians. And we might assume if he was writing to us, the list might be different again. Now, to be sure, pretty much all of what he says here in Romans is timeless. And we might feel... Yes, that's me. I could be a contributor. I could get involved in acts of mercy or whatever. But, you know, the list is hardly exhaustive. And the needs and the opportunities to serve as the world changes and the social situation changes develop. So God gives grace to us today for all sorts of things that Paul could never have imagined. Let the one who does the multimedia presentations do so with creativity. Let the one who leads the music do so with hard practice and skill and enthusiasm. Let the one who does the catering do so with cheerfulness. And so on. You get the picture. The important thing is to get involved. There's no shortage of God's grace. Only at times a shortage of people. Churches are often like Old Trafford on a Saturday afternoon. 22 men desperately in need of arrest, watched by 70,000 people, 
desperately in need of some exercise. But you know, it's not only that people need to get involved in the process of being church. Churches need to be places that allow people to get involved. They need to be places where all our gifts and skills and unique contributions can be integrated into a holistic expression of God's life. So we need to be a place where artists and musicians and photographers and writers and people who do things well with their hands and sports people and justice activists and puzzle doers and intellectuals and thinkers where everybody can feel that their passion matters and that it can serve the cause of the gospel adding to our life together by expressing the divine imprint by helping us together to be more human. Now that's a challenge actually. Churches traditionally find this very, very difficult. And as a result, they lose the contribution that many people can make and they lose the impact they should have on the world around. But church isn't just about people attending. It's about being a body together. It's about each doing what we're good at. So... Can we make Fitzroy increasingly a place where all of us can bring our talents, our skills, our passions, the grace God has given us, and find that it can contribute to what God's doing amongst us? I'm sure we can, but I don't think it's easy. And I think it will require flexibility and embracing new ways of doing things and being serious about giving people a chance to bring what they have into play. But if we can rise to the challenge, I think it's tremendously exciting. And we might, we might just have a shot of what every church talks about, making a real difference in our community. Second thing about the way this family functions is this. We love one another. Paul says in verse 10, love one another with true affection. Outdo one another in showing respect. And you remember the words of Jesus, by this shall everyone know you are my disciples, that you love one another. Paul knew that if the Christians in Rome were to be the strong united church they needed to be for the success of the gospel, that love was the foundation. It's the bottom line. Let love be genuine. No pretense. No on-the-surface niceness. Love. And we get a pretty clear idea of the sort of thing that Paul has in mind when he says in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. And as we discovered last week, for for the Romans this was very fundamental stuff. There was a lot of need in the Roman house churches, people with very little. Contribute to the needs of the saints. First Christians were pretty radical in the way that their communities operated and they present to us a big challenge. When we become Jesus followers, we're in a group of other Jesus followers. And we're in it together. Love isn't just a a smile and a a nod and a, a wee cup of tea. Or a Bible study together. It's finding ways to really support each other through our trials and difficulties. Of offering people a place where they feel comfortable enough to say, you know what, things are hard, would you pray for me? And to give each other people that we can celebrate and rejoice with. 
to offer opportunities where we can all do the things that we're really good at. The lows, the highs, sharing, supporting, praying with, sometimes holding each other up, sometimes putting our money on the table, whatever it takes. Part of it's being a place where people can ask awkward questions, where nobody thinks the worse of you for asking the questions. Soon after Christine and I started coming to Fitzroy a few years ago, we heard Ken Newell say one Sunday morning, church is the place where you can come and ask all your difficult questions. We were absolutely amazed when we heard that. Because no church we had ever been in welcomed people who asked questions. Asking questions always seemed to make people insecure and suspicious and unwelcoming. That wasn't what we found in Fitzroy, and it's one of the things that attracted us. And it's still important. As more and more people join us in Fitzroy, we need to continue to be a place where we're comfortable with people asking difficult questions, whether it's about matters of faith or about the way in which we do things. Because actually it's healthy. It's treating each other with respect. It's loving one another. Let love be genuine. Let's make sure that in all we do, genuine, caring, supportive love is in all and through all. Finally, the way things work in God's family is that we reach out to a needy world. The love within our community overflows and spills out to those around us. And actually, if it doesn't get to this point, then we really have missed the point. Be peaceful. Be a blessing to those around you even if they persecute you and treat you badly. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, Paul says. Seek to show hospitality. All to do with demonstrating God's love in practical, serving ways. And tellingly, in verse 16, Paul tells the Roman believers to associate with the lowly. Some ways maybe this was a wee bit easier for the Roman believers than it is for us, given the sort of lives they have and the sort of lives we have. But for us, it's pretty challenging. Associate with the lowly. Spend time with the poor. Each of us needs to find a way to be able to do this. Because it's this, maybe more than anything else, that really takes us to the heart of what God is doing in the world. It's this that will give our lives perspective and meaning as we minister to the needs of those who are very little. As we express the love of God to those who know very little of anybody's love, it's there that we really get to the heart of what the gospel means. It's there that we find the center of the gospel. Associate with the lowly. Individually, as a group of Jesus followers, we've got to make sure we're connected in some way with the poor, with the lowly, and to let the love and uh, and acceptance that we've experienced by being adopted into God's family, spill out and include those who need it most. All this then is part of Paul's vision for how things work in this new family that God has made. Our story, which Paul tells in Romans, is to be sure the story of individual feelings and our estrangement from God and of the possibility for each of us to be set right and adopted into his family. But the story is an ongoing story, which has worked out not simply 
in our inner interior lives, but in the context of a body of God's people and in particular the real group of people around us in what we call church. For most of us here this morning, I guess that's Fitzroy. And that's a bit scary, isn't it? But it's also very exciting because if we can really grasp the vision that Paul sets before us in Romans of this new family that God has created and of the possibilities that this gives for our own lives and the life of the world, then there's no end of potential of what God can do through us. A group of people demonstrating real love for each other and to the world around is enough to change the world.